at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely your reward is great in heaven. That is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Here's a news flash for you. Writers are insecure, especially when they're writing. Oh, sure, I mean, they seem self-confident, like they have world by the table, the tail maybe, but I mean, when they're alone and they're pretty sure nobody's watching, they tell themselves that whatever it is that they're working on, it's garbage. And how did they ever think that they had anything important to say? I mean, who are they kidding anyways? They've seen Marmaduke cartoons with greater intellectual verve and emotional depth. Now, as a corollary to all the self-loathing, writers are convinced that other writers don't suffer from the same doubt. In fact, all the stuff that other writers write is, is probably brilliant, unlike all the stupid drivel that you've been dumping on the world day after day. And so it is that most writers regularly convince themselves that they ought to just quit, that the whole thing is just too difficult and that they're not really any good at it anyway. I mean, maybe the highway department needs someone to supervise trash pickup along the interstate. Something. It's a crisis of confidence. I mean, 
what if I'm not all that? I mean, what if I'm just a big phony? All right, uh, so maybe you're not a writer, but have you ever done that to yourself about something that you care about? I mean, you want to learn Spanish or, or, or how to paint watercolors or build, uh, rebuild a transmission or, 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 or go noodling with native Arkansans. When you're in the middle of it, there are occasions, I bet, where you think to yourself, ah, I'm the worst. I mean, somebody smart would not have any trouble with this. I swear I should just give up. In academia, we call that uh, imposter syndrome. The fear that people will find out you're just making your way through it all. <laughs> that everybody else is competent, but you, unfortunately, are not. It, imposter syndrome. I mean, you're just one step away from being discovered as a fraud. I remember the summer of 2006 very well. I, I, I worked here at Douglas while my predecessor, Dean Eucalus, was on sabbatical in France, bless his heart. <laughs> I, I also had something to do with France at the time. <clears throat> I was taking a reading course to pass one of my language exams for my degree which is not, when you stop and think about it, really the same thing. <laughs> Initially, at the, at, at, at the uh, beginning of the summer, I had surgery on my elbow about the same time that Susan's dad was diagnosed with progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a rare brain disorder that kind of looks like Parkinson's disease on steroids. He died by the end of the summer. Now, needless to say, it was a pretty stressful time. But one of the things I found most anxiety-producing was the fact that I was getting ready to teach two courses in world religions at U of L in the fall. I'd been hired as a graduate teaching assistant, and I was required to teach two courses each semester and one course in the summer. And I, I was nervous about it. For one thing, I'd never taught world religions before. I mean, I felt comfortable teaching about Christianity and Judaism. That was two religious traditions that I'd spent my life studying. But Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam? I, I figured as June opened up that, that, that I knew as much about these religions as my students were likely to know, which is to say hardly anything. I had to spend all my free time that summer studying French or learning three-fifths of the world's great religions. But the other thing that kept me up at night was thinking that I would be responsible for teaching college kids for actual money. I mean, I was a student myself, so I knew how much these students' parents were paying per credit hour. And with 35 students in the class, I mean, we were talking about thousands of dollars that people were shelling out to hear me talk about something that I had no background in. And if I was awful at it, I, I really didn't know what I was going to do for the rest of my life because at that point I knew that the one thing I didn't want to do ever again was to be a minister. <laughs> so in the GTA office before classes started, I mean, we had this conversation, I remember it, 
these first year GTAs, and, and, and we were sure that somebody in charge would eventually discover that some genius in administration had made a colossal mistake. But they were gonna let us teach for money? I mean, what are they thinking, turning our over classrooms to us with, without adult supervision? And for much of that fall semester, we were, we were sure that someone would walk into the office, call out our names and say, look, <clears throat> somebody really screwed up. We can't let you teach actual human beings. In fact, we're surprised you thought you could fool us this long. You're just gonna have to pack up and go back to where you came from. You're, did you ever feel that way? Like you're waiting for a grown-up to come along and take over before you completely ruin everything? You know, All Saints Day has a way of reminding me of what a huge phony I am. You know, all these people who've lived faithful lives, in many cases, heroic lives. I mean, here I sit, pretty sure that I'm the only one who doesn't have the slightest clue that, that, that everybody else must have it figured out in ways that will forever elude me. All my insecurities, they just come bubbling up on all saints. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that great at a lot of things preachers are supposed to be good at, let alone other Christians. I'm not that great at prayer. I get angry way too quickly. And not only during rush hour on I-64. I mean, I'm way more self-centered than I'm comfortable admitting, and even to myself. I'm, I'm more afraid of what's happening in the world political and otherwise, than I think I probably should be. I get too impatient. I'm assailed by doubts. I'm a mess. Have you ever felt that way? That everybody else has, must have it figured out while you're sitting alone in the dark, hoping against hope that your whole world doesn't come tumbling down because of your incompetence. You ever felt like the blessings that others enjoy are theirs because somehow they deserve them, whereas your lack of blessing totally reflects what you deserve, which is nothing. Have you ever felt that whatever else could be said about your faith, it, it certainly doesn't measure up to everybody else's around you, let alone the saints? I mean, look at our gospel for this morning. Jesus is offering up is Sermon on the Plain, and an and abridged variation of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Luke opens our text for this morning with Jesus saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For surely your reward is great in heaven. Jesus says that in Luke, he says that being poor, hungry, grieved, hated, but these are all reasons to be happy in the world of God's new reign. 
Now see, that's a tough one for me. I mean, how, how, how are we going to square that circle? I mean, isn't that just a way of papering over other people's hardships? That kind of inveterate naivete that helps us escape responsibility for the plight other people experience by calling it blessed. Not my help. They're blessed. Don't worry about, don't worry about Doug. He, he likes being poor. It's, it's a blessing after all. Right? You see what I mean? And, and if we take the alternate translation, what we get instead of blessed are the poor is happy are the poor. Man, I got to tell you, that doesn't sound a whole lot better, does it? I don't, yeah, don't, don't worry about Janice. She's happy to be hungry. Yeah, but I mean, that's not going to work either. We, we have a difficult time imagining Jesus saying something that somehow people enjoy grieving or are grateful when others hate them. I mean, clearly Luke doesn't mean what we mean when we call somebody blessed. Or when we say somebody's happy. So, uh, wh exactly what is going on here in Luke? Well, we might find a clue in Aristotle. So you can always find a clue in Aristotle if you look. <laughs> I'm just telling you. When Aristotle uses Greek word here, uh, makarios, it's the same word, actually, that Jesus uses in our text this morning, when he uses this word, Aristotle's not talking about an individual's personal feelings about her life or her self-satisfaction. Instead, to say that someone is makarios is to say that that person has found divine favor. But see, that's not the end of it. For Aristotle, divine blessing was only realized after the individual had achieved a virtuous life, a a complete or a perfect life through cultivating virtuous habits. And such a person would be recognized as also having received divine blessing. Makarios, in other words, was for the divine cherry on top of an otherwise amazingly well-constructed human Sunday. That is to say, a popular Greek conception of blessing was that being blessed was the divine good housekeeping seal of approval on an already pretty great life. A life with plenty enough to eat, a life without occasion for much grief, a life universally admired. These happy, fulfilled lives are the ones everybody looks at and feels like a failure by comparison. They are the blessed. But what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Plain is to completely turn that popular conception of blessing on its head. See, Jesus identifies divine blessings on lives that everyone else looks at and shudders. In the reign of God, the life that is blessed isn't the one that the individual can point to with pride and say to the world, see this great life I got here? I built that. I mean, nobody needs to feel inferior looking at the lives of those whom God calls blessed in this new reign. Why? Well, because the reign of God announces to us that there isn't any pushing to the front of the line anymore. There's no need to envy the beautiful people, no need to be jealous of the rich, no need to resent those who appear to have everything, because God has made a place for everyone and an extra special place for those folks who always seem to find themselves 
left off of everybody else's guest list. And we're able to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. See, in the reign of God, because God uses a different set of values to assign worth, we need not seek revenge on the one who hurts us. We need not cling to the stuff we have for fear that if somebody takes it, we won't have enough anymore. We don't have to sit around fretting that everybody else has got it figured out while we're still trying to figure out what language the directions are written in. In the reign of God, we don't have to look at one another and worry. What if everybody finds out I'm an imposter? Because according to Jesus, the reign of God is for losers. It's for all the people who are afraid that they're not worthy, that they don't have enough going on to commend themselves. It's, it's for everyone who spent too much time feeling left out, left behind, left holding the bag. All those people who are so casually ignored by everybody else everybody, every day. See, the good news of the gospel is that nobody has it all together. Least of all the people who cling to their wealth and power like a life preserver in an angry sea. Our lives aren't blessed because we've managed to do amazing and wonderful things that make everybody else envious. Our lives are blessed because God desires us. Regardless of our condition, we are saints. In other words, not because we're perfect, but in spite of the fact that we're not. You see, saints are, aren't people who do great things for God because they have no shortcomings, no flaws. Saints are people who do great things for God even though the deck's stacked against them. That the shortcomings and flaws constantly threaten to undo them. Saints are people determined to live their everyday lives as if God matters more than the sum total of their weaknesses. We're, we're saints, you, you and I. We're blessed because God loves us. Not because we're rich or smart or beautiful. And the wonderful thing about the reign of God is that because we know where we've come from, and therefore we know our limitations. Because we know we're not all that and a glass of iced tea. And so we're able to welcome the poor, the hungry. We're able to offer hospitality to the grieving and the despised because we know what it feels like to have those kinds of external things define our lives in negative ways. And we know God's love overcomes all of it and makes saints out of us anyway. See, that's why the, those who follow Jesus can live with such hope, can, can open, we can open our arms so wide and welcome because we're part of a community of saints that teaches us how blessed we are and how therefore how crucial it is to let the rest of the world know how blessed it is. And because, frankly, At some point, somebody opened their arms and welcomed us here. Years back, I was, I was at an interfaith dialogue 
uh, down at Kenneseth Israel on Tethersville Road. And a, a, a woman, she identified herself as Buddhist, came up to me uh, after my talk, and she asked me where I was from. And I told her, well, uh, Douglas Boulevard Christian Church, just down the street. She said, oh, that, is that the one on the, in the Douglas Loop? And I said, yep, that's us. She said, that's a big old church. I said, yeah, it sure is. She said, there must be a lot of stories there. I said, well, there sure are. And I actually only know a few of them. Then she said, well, I hope they're good ones for all of our sakes. I hope those stories are good ones. That's what she said. And she's right. There is hope in our stories. That's why we tell them. Not just stories about our heroic acts of faith either. Those are hopeful enough to be sure. No, most of the stories that we tell are about everyday saints convinced in their private moments that they're imposters who do small but hopefully vital things that help align the world we live in with the world that God desires to create. See, the whispers you hear in this church when everything is quiet are the voices of all the saints who've made a home here over the last 175 years or so. Their stories sustain us so that we might tell our stories to sustain those who come behind us. We've got saints right here who not only make the world a better place, they won't be satisfied until all the poor are made whole, until all the hungry are fed, until all the grieving are comforted, until all those who are hated know that they are loved. I know who you are. God knows who you are. And just as importantly, the people that you bless know who you are. With all the violence, fear, and hatred around us, the world needs us to take our place in the long line of saints. The world needs the love and the healing that we bring. The, it needs the justice and the peace that we pursue. The world's dying for that right now. What if everybody finds out I'm not who they think I am? Don't worry. You're almost certainly not who you think you are. But take heart. Because God knows. And all that stuff that you're worried about being an imposter at, that may be the stuff God loves the most. Amen.
Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.